Um, hello, everybody. Um, welcome to the October 25th, uh, 2018 QPSC. Uh, we will start with roll call, and then, of course, uh, right after that, we will move into closed session. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Bouquet? Here. Trustee Chiland is absent. Trustee Hernandez? Here. And Trustee Jensen is absent. We have a quorum. Thank you very much. With that, we will move into closed session. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, welcome, everybody. We are here on the October 25th QPSC. We just finished closed session. We are now moving into open session. We'll start off with item uh, B, uh, the consent agenda. Can I have a motion to approve the consent agenda? Second. Second. Okay, I'll open it up for dialogue now. Uh, uh, this is uh, the consent agenda is page five through one twenty four uh, on uh, in your enclosed packet. Um, uh, my comments are the minutes looked pretty good. No edits on the minutes from me. Anyone? Minutes. I was not here, so I don't. Remember. Got it. Uh, item number two uh, on the consent agenda B two. There are seventeen policies and procedures. That was a lot of reading. Oh, uh, Dr. Tony. Oh, shoot. I don't think we added to the policies and procedures or? Yes, ma'am. Would you bring the mic a little bit closer to you, Dr. Tony? Mm -hmm. So there's uh, four of these items that I am going to ask not be voted on to, today. So you're pulling four? Yes. Can you name the four, please? Yes, indeed. So these four that I'm asking to be pulled from the packet today are the CAUTI prevention system. That will go back for further clinical review. Of course. Uh, the um, system medication administration policy. We learned we have some changes from a regulatory perspective we need to make. And the organ and tissue donation after death and the brain death policy. So we asked for those to, to come off and we'll work with our clinical working groups to rapidly bring those back. The only other item was uh, on one word change. This is on page 75 in the um, patient's own medications. Under item, pardon me, let me go to page 75. This is under use of patient's own medications, letter A. Uh, on the third line, uh, the request from the Alameda Hospital MEC was to remove the word expensive, which seems absolutely reasonable. So it's just non-formulary items. Okay. Um, one comment on just nomenclature. Uh, sorry, Tanberry, you're always on, I'm always on nomenclature. No, no. Now uh, I have a partner in crime. Yes. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, eight. Radio pharmaceuticals. Is that the right terminology? These are radiology-related pharmaceuticals. So radio pharmaceuticals just kind of caught my attention because I'd never yes. seen that kind of word. KMBR. They all relate to the radiology service. But they're called radio pharmaceuticals, and it just sounded. It's <laughs> So I, I don't know. It turns out that it is in fact a true word. Oh, oh okay. I just googled it. Okay. <laughs> Doctor Google. Okay. So, a radioactive compound used for diagnostic or therapeutic purposes. Okay. Don't so, never. We should never second guess PNT. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. With that, uh, uh, trustees, any other dialogue? 
So I'll, I'll make a, an amendment to the motion uh, withdrawing uh, four policies uh, from our vote. System medication administration policy, CAUTI prevention, this, a system level policy, organ and tissue donation after death, brain death policy, and then the last amendment, which is withdrawing the word expensive um, from patients' own. Uh, with that, can I have a motion to approve? So moved. Second. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Abstentions. The uh, item B consent agenda uh, goes for. Thank you. Thank you for everyone's report. So uh, trying to gain some traction on time. Let's move into item C. Uh, this is the chair report. Um, uh, for those of you who have a packet, uh, this uh, begins on page 125. Um, and uh, there are some documents attached. Um, are we able to pull that off, Dave? Okay, got it. We're, I'm trying a little bit of a new thing for everybody. We're always talking through the packet, but not everyone has a packet in front of them. We're trying to see whether the PDF up on the on, on the screens would be helpful. Dave said there might be a formatting problem. We're just going to try it and see if it helps for everybody. Um, yeah, thanks, Dave. Uh, so page 125. So, so uh, this... Uh, report discussion is going to sort of follow in the vein of this journal club affair that we're trying to do to have good discussion. So um, uh, I came across this a little while ago, and I was surprised to not know it, but not that surprised. And I'm going to entitle this discussion, Could a Patient Voice Help Advance the Work of the QPSC? Could a Patient Voice Help Advance the Work of the QPSC? In support of this discussion, there are uh, uh, the, the attached documents. I hope some of you uh, got to read this. It's actually a very nice summary uh, document from the American Institute for Research. I'd like to give you the Cliff Notes version and walk us through this to help us move along. So a brief introduction to these documents. Dave, if you'll go to page 126, next page. Um, the CMS actually has a quality strategy, and this includes a vision for safer, more equitable, and patient-centered healthcare that is guided by person and family engagement. And they're going to they're use this terminology, sorry, this acronym, PFE, person and family engagement. Uh, the CMS also has a, an initiative called the Partnership for Patients. This is a safety and quality, thank you. Just uh, for a quick advance. Yes, sir. This is a safety, if it's a PDF. Yeah, it's a PDF, so it won't advance. It will advance. I just tested it. Make sure you press the right button. This one. I just tested it. But that works with a PowerPoint. Yeah. And this is a PDF. No, it'll work with a PDF. Let me check it again. We'll keep going. We haven't had this before. Let's, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to figure it out. So uh, the Partnership for Patients, uh, and again, another acronym, PFP, is a safety and quality improvement initiative predicated on person and family engagement, PFE. The documents here outlines the core principles of person and family engagement and actually makes a case that PFE, person and family engagement, can actually result uh, in improved outcomes and further address equity, for which we've been talking about. Um, uh, they, they make a suggestion for five engagement metrics, five engagement metrics, uh, which are summarized in the last page of this grouping, for which you may or may not see. Um, I just wanted to focus on uh, uh, objective number five, and that is going to be... Yes. 
patient representatives on the board of directors. Again, this is a CMS quality strategy. There's nothing that obligates us to do this. Um, however, I think it's a good discussion and debate. Um, so, so uh, hi there, Becky. Uh, no, welcome. So, uh, I'd like to open up this for discussion. Uh, I know uh, Dr. Jamaluddin and Tanvir and, and Dr. Tornabedi have previously, we've had a little bit of discussion. I'd like to open this up for discussion for five or ten minutes and see, is this something that we should do and how should we do it? I'm surprised we do not have a patient advisory council or a patient advisory um, group because I think this is spot on and um, there's nothing like seeing our care through the eyes of a patient or the family who becomes the patient advocate during you know major surgery or major event or something so I'm all for it I think that this is very important to do so trustee Hernandez as clarification the system actually does have a patient affairs committee uh, or our patient relations committee I I, I, I I sadly admit I actually don't know the details of that where that where that representation comes I presume it comes up through the chief medical officer's office no, okay. it was uh, it was, I think, John Chapman and the Pace Group who... Uh, no, no, no. We're, we're working through that. It's part of the work that uh, Dr. Hussein and myself, we've been working on in the structure. We have we have a... So does it report through operations? It re it re it'll report ultimately through quality. Okay, through quality. But yes. does it which, which then would come to you. Does it come okay. here? And and so the question is, so, so the good news is we have some elements of this. Actually, I have a few patients who actually sit on that committee. And, 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 but this was actually something different. The CMS suggests that they should be, again, at the highest level of the organization. And that's the discussion I want to have here. Well, just a bit, why aren't they here? I mean, yeah. what, what's, what's keeping them from coming to the board meetings or keeping them from being here? When we have the HRSA, um, the healthcare, the, the FQHCs, they have the kind of governing board where, like, you know, a, 51% of the board has to be have lived experience or be a current patient or have been something. In our board structure, that isn't something that's built into that, but really having either, you know, having a current patient or having, um, having the advisory group be meaningful in the way that they're really informing um, that. So, yeah, I will. Yeah, or just to have a representative of that committee come here to give us a report. Yeah. So, so the great thing is, uh, this is actually a nicely written document. It's up there for no one that no one can read. If you're looking at it on your computer, it's page 131. So again, this is PFE metric five. I want to repeat: there's nothing that obligates our organization to do this. It's a CMS quality strategy. But I, I just wanted to say one thing, and then to you, Trustee Jensen. So on, on PFE number five. Uh, the, the metric language is the hospital has one or more patients who serve on a governing and or leadership board as a patient representative. And then there's a little bit of questions. It's very nicely written. Do we meet the metric? Yes, if the hospital has at least one position on the board designated for a patient or family member who is appointed to represent that perspective or if a specific board representative is not possible, the hospital has implemented one of the alternatives to the metric. 
or three, hospitals are, and, and third message, hospitals are encouraged to consider and pursue options for achieving the intent of this metric. So the whole point of it is it, 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 the reason we don't have a patient on the board is we haven't had this discussion, really. So that's why I wanted to start it for us. Dr. Tornamani, you have something? You, you. Uh, just a, um, a moment of uh, appreciation for this discussion. Um, I have had um, some experience with having patient partners um, on um, high-level governing bodies, and it was part of the standard work um, to always, um, with every discussion item, stop and, and bring in that, that voice um, uh, to get the patient perspective. And uh, it added a lot to every single discussion. Dr. J. Uh, I mean, uh, I, uh, you know, I haven't really tackled this problem here, but my experience in New York City, we had a patient advisory board, and uh, the chair of the advisory board sits on the medical staff uh, committee, and uh, uh, there was a community representative on the, on the quality uh, uh, on the quality board. Uh, of trustees, but uh, I mean, we certainly will look at it to see how we can uh, operationalize this. Uh, uh, our connection, I, at least you know, my my connection here in the community is through the the patients uh, that uh, whom, whom we see. Uh, so we have to, uh, and and it is it is very very diverse here. So plus we have uh, we have uh, three other hospitals and four wellness centers throughout the county. So how are we going to have uh, um, you know, a meaningful representation, effective representation? That's, that's how we approach. So I would like to suggest something about that. I think mm -hmm. that we need to look at the patient demographics, not just by ethnicity or um, uh, those uh, characteristics, but I think we need to look at um, what are those presenting issues that we most deal with in the system that pose the greatest challenge for our patients to navigate our system? And ask about that because um, if it's an episodic event and you came here once, I don't think that's you know the person that I would be trying to seek out for the advisory group. But I'd like to know what it's like for someone who has a chronic condition who has to be here a lot, who has to navigate different systems. Um, I'd also like to know what it's like for folks that uh, you know, access just the wellness clinics and, and just see us through those systems, right, through, through those clinics. Uh, I, I would imagine all of the staff could say, you know, you look at how we're accessed, there's some demographics that are common among those we serve and perhaps representatives from those different uh, groupings would be helpful. Trustee Jensen. Um, two things to your point, um, Maria. I, we have the um, homeless, healthcare for the homeless board, right, that is actually made up of, it includes patients, includes, um, and we also have, um, Ms., um, I'm forgetting his name, but um, the gentleman who joins us. David Mordova? Often, no. From, from Hallbridge. Yeah. What was his name, Richard? Um, can I see? Is that uh, resident? Uh, we all know the gentleman who joins us. Yes. And he, um, 
he makes it a point to yeah. come and share information. And, 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 and so to that, my question, I, I do have a question. My question is to Richard, actually. Do, is there a resident committee of sorts at, at either of both? So at all the post-acute sites, there are monthly resident council meetings, mm -hmm. and there's a resident council president at each site, and the resident that you're talking about is a resident council president for Park Bridge. Mm -hmm. um, and so only members of the staff can be invited by the uh, resident council president. The only person who can be in there from staff is the activity director, and so that way it leaves an opportunity for residents to really express their concerns if it's regarding nursing, food, EVS, um, any type of care issues, and then the activity director brings that back to the team in a very um, anonymous way, just saying these are some of the concerns that came to the attention. And then the team meets um, within the next day or two and then writes a plan of action to say this is how we're responding to it, and then the responses go back to the residents to say this is how the team uh, developed an action plan to correct it, and then they put in monitoring tools to say, now that we put this new process into place, we're going to monitor it to see if it's working. And then at the next resident council meeting, they ask the residents, have you seen improvement in this area? And that seems to be, uh, I wonder if perhaps we could take some of the models that we have in existence and either have a report um, to QPSC from those and see how they might be established in other parts of the organization? I, I think that's good. I think uh, first we need to clarify what exists out there. I guess that's part of the point. Uh, not all of us can articulate. I, uh, certainly patient voices are coming to us, but uh, have we been deliberate in how we use the patient voice? And then is the vision to have that voice at the highest level of the organization here the appropriate one? At this point, my suggestion is probably yes, but I wanted to start this off just as a dialogue. We actually can't even vote on this. This is just to spur dialogue and to kind of put that seed in, in everyone's head. So my ask, uh, I always apologize to Dr. J when I'm, uh, I'm not supposed to give him work, per se, but uh, if you, Dr. J, if your team could maybe help give a little bit of an outline as to the interfaces for, that, that currently exist, because I know there's a patient advisory council. I just don't know how they report, how it's composed, I think that would be helpful in, in uh, inspiring this further dialogue with the ultimate vision, I believe, to put someone here at, uh, on, on this committee. We have three in KSIP, in the primary care clinic. We have three? Three patient councils. We have one speaking, three. Oh. one man speaking, and one English-speaking patient council. Okay. Can I use the microphone? One more time. Dr. Baden, if you'll say that one more time, oh, because I have to type this out. Like, that's okay. There are actually three patient council, advisory councils in our adult medicine primary care clinic here at Highland. One English-speaking, one Spanish-speaking, and one Mien-speaking patient council. And do you know who oversees that? Alex Diaz, one of our primary care docs, as okay. you know. You know him. He oversees it, and then he reports their findings to clinic leadership, ah. the medical director, and they actually help drive many, many changes in it's our primary care clinic. So uh, a potential working model that's working in one segment of the organization. So some, maybe some learnings for all of us. Uh, maybe we could ask Dr. Diaz to come. Would you probably be happy to? I will try to get an assessment system-wide yes, because there could be, like, as you can see, there could be some councils. I believe there, yeah, there are probably great pockets around here, and, and uh, I think the opportunity is to be more deliberate about it. It would be great to see kind of a chart to show you know, which organizations have resident councils, which ones have kind of these, these patient councils and other. 
other sort of patient experience groups that are out there because it seems like we have multiple groups out there and I don't even know if those groups are all communicating with each other in some fashion through some quality committee. So, Dr. J.D., the quarter would be enough time to kind of put that together. Okay. Mr. Finley. Sorry, I'm just seeking a point of clarification here. So is the, is the thrust of this effort to look at uh, uh, the, the perspective or the ability of the board to have a perspective uh, from uh, uh, patients or whether the board is ascertaining that the organization uh, um, seeks and uses patient input for day-to-day business purposes? Yeah, I'm thinking of our patient voices included, uh, how are they included in, in the, you know, clinical care that we do in the way that we operate as well, so. So you, I want to with, with some leverage. Yes. Uh, not just patient voices through the age gaps or, or so, but with, with some. Right, no, I understand. Uh, but, but so are you, are you, is a request to get uh, information on the different modalities by which we do that outside of just a survey, which obviously there are several examples of that. Is that the crux of what you're seeking now, or was it to get to uh, the, the, the context of what you have here? How much is that impacting your your governing? Because those are two separate things as far as I'm, I, I can discern. From my perspective, it's to add another voice and perspective to our global decision making. And, and in this committee's view on quality, for which we, we say patient-centeredness. So putting actually a patient at the center when we have these dialogues and we put up all these, uh, you know, our, our True North metrics and they say, what is that? And, and, and so for me, it's to, to uh, add a perspective to what we do and, and just to have them as a contributing voice. So, so to, to what the board does? So you mean you, you want that voice? I'm just, uh, do you yes. have the voice at the, in the discussion with you, or do you want to make sure that it's already incorporated in the discussions that are brought back to you? I, again, I, I think you missed the intro on this. Uh, I did, I apologize, but I, I no, 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 no. Yeah, this, this, this comes from a CMS, CMS recommendation. Right, right, right. So, so in following with a recommendation to have voices scattered throughout an organization, uh, patient voices, but also, most notably, the fifth metric is to put one at the highest level of the organization, the board of directors. Well, that's, that's what I'm asking. So it sounds like, uh, just so we're clear on the, the follow-up, so it sounds like the request would address the first part of it, where we, we would um, bring back to you a, a um, sort of a, a portfolio, if you will, of the different uh, ways in which that's happening in the organization, but it doesn't seem to me to get to that last part that you just mentioned. And I'm trying to see if that's something you're saying We'll forego that, or you know, you 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 just want to focus on this part of it. I, I, for me, and again, it shouldn't be about me; it's about us. I need to know what exists out there, uh, and, and and to see if the infrastructure is set so that this would be a right move to put this person on on, on the board. How would that person be chosen? You know, how which voices would they represent? How many people are there? Are there already existing uh, uh, an existing data flow that that's, that actually bypasses this committee? I, I these are the questions that I don't know. So this uh, this portfolio would I think allow the royal we to examine the actual input of the patient voice in healthcare in our system. So, so we get a landscape analysis, then we yeah. can decide the next steps. So does yes. it need to be at the governance level, or yeah. is it still happening? Or, or, is it, or is it effective at its current level? Right. right. Yeah, and and that that's. 
Is that? It, it does. Uh, just one other thing I'd be remiss if I didn't say it as a CEO. Um, uh, we're looking at this from, from uh, one direction, which is existing patients who could then provide a perspective, which at a system level we talked about kind of the complexity of that, but that's fine. We, there's an alternate direction too, which is existing board members who are patients too. So I'd like to not forego that opportunity so that you sure. got, there's a, a way to get an additional lens, uh, which is what we do at the leadership level yeah. to so become patients of the system too. Mm -hmm. So you get to see it that way. Would you be in favor of having a patient at the board level? I have no, no resolution at all. I think it would be uh, uh, helpful. I think some of the challenges uh, that, would, uh, that we face would be bandwidth, obviously. Uh, uh, I think you'd have to figure out a construct to make it work for the patient so that he or she could uh, provide their perspective. Uh, uh, obviously, somebody who feels that they uh, have the, uh, the wherewithal to participate in the, the discussions, so some of the discussions may be you know, not germane or you know, right. not at a level that's accessible to be uh, uh, honest given uh, the demographics of the population we serve, so we want to be mindful of that. And sometimes, um, you know, it's a representation, that person, we have to find somebody who feels comfortable being a conduit, because it's not just, the goal wouldn't be for them to say, what is your experience exclusively, it would be, you know, what, what are patients seeing, uh, and you'd be asking that. So, so it's, it's a bit of a lift uh, for a system that's complicated to have one person do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you just have to think about board dimensions too, because Absolutely. if you have one, then you're adding, you're having an even number uh, board, unless you figure out a way to have the person on the committee and not on the full board themselves, which is also possible. Yeah. There are also other options. Instead of having a full board member, to have someone come to each exactly. board member and provide their input, and that actually gives us a patient engagement okay. strategy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think this is a two-step process. First, and we have to make the, the landscape, landscape yeah. analysis. We get the current state uh, right. description. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. And, and I do want to correct something. I did visit once with a Latino patient uh, group. It was very informal, but they were very much appreciative that uh, Dr. Diaz does what he does to engage them, and it was wonderful. Um, I believe we met at the time we were thinking about the signage mm -hmm. to make sure everyone felt safe to come to the facility during so I'm sorry, I had a lapse in my memory about that, so that was very helpful. But I did not know we have other other groups of that sort, so good, good discussion. Thank you for everyone's discussion. Oh, sorry, Trustee Jensen, to close out. Close out, Arnold Granger. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, okay. It would be a good person to even talk to about how this would work. Yeah. Um, with that, we will close out uh, item C. Uh, we're only about 10 minutes off, so maybe we'll try to pick up some, some pace. We'll move into item D, med staff reports. Um, uh, remember keeping in, 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 uh, in the spirit of 25% presentation, 75% dialogue, so we can have discussions. Uh, we have about 35 uh, minutes here to keep us back on time. So as I say, dealer's choice, doctors, who would like to go first? And it'll be Dr. Magalong. <laughs> um, so for Alameda uh, Hospital Medical Staff, um, we are we approved the um, clinical privileges for OBGYN and um, psychiatry multifacility privilege form. So that's uh, open session item, right, Dr. Yes. Yes. Um, 
for uh, we did not have any um, professional or service contracting um, issues to report uh, for quality and, I, uh, and outcomes um, during our uh, uh, MEC meeting we had a continued discussion regarding improving our patient throughput through uh, the patient uh, transfer center there's uh, been ongoing discussion on how we could um, uh, safely uh, transfer patients from uh, from Highland to um, uh, Alameda Hospital. There were some uh, patient uh, issues that were discussed uh, to um, learn from them and um, in improve the process. Um, I think um, the, uh, the, uh, we wanted to ensure that um, the Patients, uh, patients that are transferred, especially the critical care patients, would, um, would um, uh, be um, be addressed uh, properly during the, the the transfer process. There's some challenges that we have because the transfer center is only open for a certain period of time. Uh, it's not a 24-hour uh, transfer center, um, so um, some of these cases are not being tracked in terms of. Uh, you know what happened uh, when we're doing our uh, analysis on, on each particular case. I think um, we're seeing uh, more transfers to our hospital after 6 p.m., which was a concern for the medical staff. Or if we could, if there's a way for these transfers to happen um, earlier during the day, um, and I know that's a workflow uh, issue with um, with ED. Um, and um, there's been some discussion of whether we can transfer this, this patient they get over to Alameda, that they be placed um, in a higher level of, of the unit so that they can be more closely monitored. I think we're finding that the weakest link that we have both from, uh, from the uh, physicians and nursing staff is that during nighttime, you know, there's um, there are more power nurses. They're not familiar with the system. Uh, physicians also, the, um, the uh, night, the nocturnists that we have um, are, um, are still not familiar with, with the workflow issues. So it's just the, the staffing is much better during the day. And, and so we're, we're having these discussions with the transfer center. Also, we're happy to uh, receive the um, uh, notification that the, the transfer discussions that are happening is now being reported. So we could actually you know, track the discussions from clinicians as to you know, the, the, the cases that are being, being transferred. Okay. So How long is that been going on, the recording of the uh, transfer um, discussions? I think we just um, have One week. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it, uh, it, uh, it, uh, it's, as a standard play for transfer centers, yeah, so yeah. I think it's a great move. Great job, Dr. Carmi. Um, I apologize for not being trusty, Jen. Um, so uh, my question is about the transfer center. It's not for you, Dr. Meadow, uh, maybe Dr. Bateman or Dr. Jamaldi. If the center's open a certain period of time, uh, uh, I'm assuming that transfers happen outside of those hours as well. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's correct. And we, through the, the transfer council, which we've now increased in frequency to once a month, we're working on really shoring up the standard work around the handoff from one hospital to the next. And um, in fact, and certainly in, in response to these concerns about the clinical decline of a patient who is transferred 
um, from 1AB to then the inpatient environment at the next hospital. Um, within this week, we're instituting a eyeballs on the patient um, process before transfer uh, by an ED physician, so a final uh, assessment before that patient gets sent. And Dr. Simon um, and Susan and then Shereen Cronin are all working together to develop that process so that um, we have that last set of eyes on the patient before any transfer happens. And to the chair, I'd, I'd just like to get um, a presentation of future data about how the transfer center works within the facility, the acute care facility. Excellent. We, we will, we will put, some, put that on for future date. Uh, Dr. Maglong, I apologize. Continue. Thank you. Um, um, other issues that uh, we discussed were, um, um, so, uh, I know I brought up the topic about uh, radiology and paracentesis at the hospital, so we're happy to report that um, the therapeutic paracentesis is currently now available at uh, Alameda Hospital for inpatients. Um, also, there's been some discussion regarding um, uh, improving um, opportunities for um, better uh, cardiology coverage on the weekend. I think there's been some discussion during the MEC meeting about, um, so right now uh, on weekends, our cardiologists are available by phone, and um, the standard work that we had before was that the cardiologists were rounding on, on weekends at, at Alameda Hospital, and there's been some uh, uh, change in, in that workflow, so there's been ongoing discussion with that. Other issues that you know continue to discuss is the improvement with you know GI and neurology coverage, which is an ongoing discussion that we're having. Right. And that ends my report. Are there any questions? Trustees, any questions for Dr. Magalong? The primary care in Alameda is yes. that under. So yeah, so yeah, the, the primary care uh, clinic at Marina is working well. Um, we've um, had Dr. Abdo come to our. Um, uh, MEC and ask for feedback of how things are going for, for patients that are being referred to the primary care clinic. And so we are successful in, in getting our patients who need primary care uh, to the clinic. Um, she has not had any problems with getting information from, uh, from inpatient for follow-up, so she's getting all the information that she needs uh, when she sees this patient on follow-up. So that's been effective. Well, yes. Okay. Very good. Yeah. That's good to hear. Trustees, anyone? Uh, you know my standard work question, Dr. Maglong. Any further comments or suggestions to help us in the pursuit of the highest quality care at Alameda Hospital? No. Thank you. Thank you for your report. Um, Dr. Chu. Yes. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, NMA uh, credentialing privilege. Uh, we approved the uh, psychiatrist, uh, psychiatry multi-facility privilege form, and that's in Exhibit 1. And on to uh, Item B, uh, Professional Service and Contracting. Uh, the, a new uh, community uh, general surgeon did not receive a contract with uh, AHS to provide ED uh, code coverage. And uh, this will discourage the community sur uh, surgeon from uh, involving uh, involvement with the hospital. And uh, we uh, had a discussion 
that was carried out with uh, Dr. Jamaluddin and Dr. Yasumoto regarding the availability of certain radiologic uh, procedure at San Andrew Hospital. And the system is uh, working toward process to performance of these procedures. And uh, on to item C, uh, quality and outcome. Uh, the 2019 True North Matrix uh, dashboard was reviewed. And uh, the San Andrew Hospital hosted an AHS uh, simulation center open house. Uh, this, uh, uh, this was uh, in September. And uh, this was a well received. And uh, the Wyndham chart audit uh, demonstrated greater than 90 degree compliance with the moderate sedation policy and procedure. And the uh, medical staff office continued to gather full vaccination documentation for all providers. And the OPPE corrective plan and other plans pertaining to the Joint Commission survey were approved. And total surgical volume remains steady uh, when compared to the prior years and our endoscopic uh, volume demonstrated an increase. Okay, uh, on to item, item D. Uh, the rehab move to San Andrew Hospital and its implication was presented by Dr. Jamaluddin and was discussed at length. Uh, the medical staff urged the board not to rush into a decision in November meeting and allow more time to obtain input from the uh, medical staff to assess the potential ramification. Thank you. May I ask Dr. Jamaluddin, do you want to expand on that whole uh, community contract, surgeon contract? Of course, yes. So uh, there was uh, a surgeon uh, before this uh, surgeon who uh, I was asked to terminate the contract with the medical staff and we did. But uh, then uh, this surgeon, you know, they just credentialed him without prior agreement with me to get the contract. So the agreement was really to have the, the UCSF surgeon cover uh, for, uh, uh, for that night calls. So the contract is really for night call coverage. Uh, so I have two options here. Uh, one option is to let the system-wide UCSF surgeon who are under Alameda Health Partners with assigned billing to Alameda Health Partners take this contract. Uh, the other option is to uh, give the contract to the community physician. Now, uh, I mean, as I work for the system, that's an uh, option to keep the integrated group to cover for this. Now, uh, there was no prior agreement before recruiting the surgeon with me that I'm going to give the, the, the contract. And uh, actually, it came from the credentialing team. They came and asked me, oh, this physician needs a contract. So uh, after he was credentialed, then Dr. Joel Shur and uh, the chief of surgery came and asked me this. So uh, I think from my perspective and from the perspective of integration and from the perspective of uh, uh, the supplemental fund when we have assigned billing uh, uh, to have one uh, one uh, surgeon covering uh, Alameda Hospital and San Diego as the same group is is a, is a more sound decision. Fiscal decision. Yeah. So, uh, any perspectives from? Well, um, the current arrangement at uh, San Diego Hospital right now is that. Uh, the UCSF or contracted uh, physician uh, surgeon would uh, 
Alameda Health System take uh, half of the call, uh, possibly two weeks. And the other two weeks were covered by the community surgeons uh, just, uh, that's working in the community hospital. So the, uh, you know, the, the, the privilege and uh, this uh, patient, uh, this uh, surgeon getting credential and getting contract two separate issues. They, you know, anybody can get um, uh, credential at San Diego Hospital. Uh, the, um, the point is that uh, with the community surgeon wish to you know, not take it anymore, it's call away from the uh, UCSF surgeon. It was two weeks, two weeks. They were, the, the new surgeon was just going to come on and take on uh, this post schedule. That's, um, you know, say, there's actually uh, two community surgeons right now that's taking call. And they, they, instead of two community surgeons sharing the two weeks, they were, uh, the was proposal was to have the three community surgeons sharing the two weeks. So uh, in uh, net um, fiscal um, uh, expenditure should be neutral because uh, it's the same two weeks arrangement and same two week arrangement. Uh, so and uh, that's uh, traditionally uh, you know, when the ER surgical call is actually not that much sought after. It's actually in uh, another hospital they're having trouble getting uh, coverage, at, you know, getting surgery to take an uh, ER call. And uh, I would thought you know, this would be uh, a good way to help this new surgeon grow his practice. He can take call uh, you know, uh, at San Andrew Hospital in the ED and you know, uh, get referral, get patient that way. And uh, that's our uh, MEC desires to that now have the new surgeon get uh, a, a chance to go his practice at uh, San Andrew Hospital. Who owns the call uh, uh, schedule? The, the chair of surgery, I presume. Uh, chair of surgery, and by now, yes, and by now. So who is the chair in this dialogue, I guess? I'm, I'm uh, it's uh, Dr. Joseph Chang. Okay. He's the chair in, in his uh, And, and Dr. Day, I presume you and Dr. Chang had discussions on, on, on this? Uh, yes, uh, and the surgeon who was recruited is part of his uh, group. Ah. So, and plus uh, uh, general surgeon is also his wife. So there is some conflict of interest in, uh, in that, uh, in uh, that it's aspect. Not, it's, it's not part of his group, it's part of his wife's group. His wife's group, sorry, yeah, his wife's mm -hmm. group. So, I mean, uh, it is... Uh, I have discussed it uh, also with Luis, and uh, you know I had uh, issues also with Stark issues. You know, just saying that we are contracting with a physician who's going to bring his business here. You know, just send me an email. So I, 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 you know, I have very serious risk here, you know, especially if we get audited. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so uh, this, but yeah, the question is, is, it goes to decision making and, and communication and clarity. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I would hope that the MEC would maybe be aware of, of Dr. J's concerns and Dr. J would be aware of, the, of, of this surgeon and your, your chair's concerns. Mm -hmm. And my question is, did that dialogue happen? And, and Dr. J, you both, you, yes. okay. Dr. Chu, further comments? Uh, uh, yeah, so, um, Regarding this matter, yeah, on this yeah. matter, uh, no, no, that's uh, 
I would hope that uh, they, um, you know, uh, as far as the stock issue uh, is, uh, you you uh, allow the surgeon to take call here, and then he helping grow his business, helping the hospital. I don't think that's a stock issue. That's just common um, business practice where you know a, a new surgeon establish an office in the, around the hospital, gets a call schedule, get a contract to take call and he used the hospital more as a result? Maybe, maybe not. But I don't think that's a strong violation. I really don't have some clarity on that, no? I mean, you could just, Mike, Mr. Moore? I, I don't know anything about this, so I'm not in a position to say one way or the other. Can I um, just briefly? Yes, give a, a perspective from the, the other community hospital. I think um, speaking in general with, uh, with the system's desire to integrate um, uh, services for specialties across the system, what the community hospital's medical staff is concerned about is that as we, um, as we give exclusive contracts, for example, to surgery uh, to a certain group, there are certain, uh, there are still community doctors, let's say surgeons in the area who still want to bring their patients to, for example, Alameda Hospital or San Leandro Hospital, but they're not allowed to participate in the call schedule. I think um, this, this, this incentivizes them for continuing to support the community hospital because the, the it is an open medical staff, and we should be, uh, just from the medical staff perspective, is that we should be equal to all the surgeons or all the specialties that still are willing to be part of the medical staff. I think um, we've had this discussion before in, with our, with the change in the, um, in the contract for the community surgeons at Alameda, uh, where before they were part of HS, and now our AHP, and the, the contract became part of um, uh, is now under the UCSF surgeons. So the initial request for, by these community surgeons is that we still want to be in the community and establish our practice here. But one of the things that would help them is what Dr. Um, Chu mentioned was that if we're starting practice here, then we should, you know, the, the ER is, is kind of like a referral source for them to grow their practice. So, are we allowed to be on call for ER um, if we are no longer the contracted group? We'll just be on our own practice. But, I get, you know, but the decision was that this is an exclusive on-call schedule for the UCSF surgeons. And so the two community surgeons that we had um, you know, left the area because they did not, they, were, they felt that you know, there, there was no um, engagement or support from the hospital to be able to still continue there. So I think that's, we don't have that much special, specialists anymore for a lot that go to Alameda, but I think there's more over at, at San Leandro. So I think that's a thought when, when we try to integrate services is that you know, we do still have existing you know, few specialists in the community hospital so are we totally just going through and, and not showing support to them? I think it's a, from the medical staff um, perspective is that we need 
they are part of our medical staff. So I think what Dr. Chu's perspective is, is that can they be still part of the call schedule? If they're still you know, bringing patients doing their, their you know, doing procedures at the hospital. So that's just my um, mm -hmm. perspective of the issue. Thank you, Dr. Thank you for sharing. Dr. Chu, please continue. Okay. Uh, so um, I, uh, I went through uh, item A, B, and C, and D. And any um, question, any comment on the board? Mr. Finley. Um, so well, I just want to comment on this uh, discussion, which I think is a very healthy discussion. I appreciate it. I think one of the things that uh, uh, sort of sets, uh, makes us a bit distinctive is our, our responsibility to take care for the entirety of our community. And that uh, uh, obligation creates a nice, uh, what I referred to when I was talking to a few doctors yesterday, a nice Venn overlap with some of the business imperatives of a private practice, uh, meaning that there are some overlapping patient populations who we all serve uh, uh, and, and intend to serve, and there are some populations for which uh, we serve that don't necessarily comport with a private model, and vice versa, potentially, although we don't uh, do that to an exclusion, it may be because of uh, insurance contracts or other sort of preclusions that, pre that steer uh, patient volume in one direction or another. Um, with respect to determinations around uh, um, call coverage or medical staff participation, I think uh, I said medical staff participation is uh, we have open medical staffs at the community hospitals and that is purely a, 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 the purview of the MEC. When you get to, and I appreciate Dr. Chu uh, making this distinction, when you get to contracts for a business relationship where the system now uh, um, um, contracts with a provider for services, that needs to be driven by a need and not by a desire to help the provider establish a practice, but by a business need for the organization. And I think in some cases, when you're dealing with a system that has an ob obligation to leverage its resources in the most economically responsible manner possible, there, there, are the, there will be and there are occasions where existing resources can be leveraged in a way that would make it challenging to justify why you are then contracting with or, uh, or not leveraging those resources and then further expending additional resources uh, that don't seem to comport with a justifiable case from your business standpoint, not from the standpoint of actually then helping, even if it's a benevolent purpose, helping another business. There is, in my mind, and I don't know all the details here, a potential risk from a stark perspective of, uh, of reading into any sort of consideration of um, a provider uh, getting a call coverage that allows him or her to build their practice with the concept or with any supposition that that will then bring more volume to the hospital itself. And I think that is, seems to me to be one of the uh, things that was uh, um, inherent in this conversation which made uh, Dr. Jamaluddin somewhat concerned about the prospect that that would be at all a factor in determining whether or not we extended a contract to any provider. So um, uh, I think it's, in, it's, it's still the case that this organization from the community hospital perspective welcomes community providers. Uh, we have a challenge oftentimes with our community providers when a contracting perspective 
aspect of that, we end up having to provide subsidies to those providers because when they cover or care for the Medi-Cal population or the health pack population, it doesn't meet their costs. So when we do that, we have to think about whether that's the most economically efficient way to do it or do we grow within our system and then be able to do that in a sustainable way. We also have challenges sometimes fair or unfair on the uh, private side where providers uh, um, timeliness and willingness and, uh, to see all the patients that we serve. And so we have, and on the other hand, we have providers who are completely aligned mission-wise and, and that doesn't become an issue for us to think about uh, providing that same quality and level of access to every patient in our system. Uh, I don't begrudge anybody for that sort of uh, business model. That is their model or maybe their model. It just is not our imperative to figure out how to do that in a way that is more consider, uh, considered of their business model than what we have an obligation to do. So um, I hope that provides some clarity for some of these decisions, which I concede are quite challenging because we do want to be open to all. And uh, the fact that uh, providers get access on uh, or privileges on the medical side should actually convey. There's nothing that precludes us from wanting to continue to uh, provide care within our doors, and we welcome them doing that. That should not be a suggestion that, that the, uh, the ability to do that should be predicated on establishing some business contract with them to, to help to grow that business in any way. Thank you. Dr. Shu, anything further? Your, your item D uh, makes comment to uh, an important discussion item which will occur tomorrow yes. at, at the at the Med Staff Retreat regarding the San Leandro Hospital transition. So I, I would defer that okay. to tomorrow's discussion. We're going to have almost two and a half hours tomorrow to talk about that. Is that is that acceptable to you? Yes. Is there a time for that? Uh, it, it is slated to be after the lunch break. So uh, uh, I'll, I'll end as I end all, uh, Dr. Chu. Mm -hmm. Any further comments or suggestions to help us in the pursuit of the highest quality care at San Leandro Hospital? Yes. Um, uh, the uh, practice model um, at uh, AHS traditionally being uh, employee physician and contracted physician, and it's quite different from uh, uh, community pri private practice physician that we have the San Diego Alameda Hospital. And I know, you know, sometimes, uh, like um, Mr. Uh, Finney said, there's sometimes they over overlap, and sometimes they don't. And uh, I would suggest that uh, the AHS keep it uh, open mind and put a welcome map out for community physician uh, to allow them to grow their business. And in a way, I'm pretty sure that will benefit both uh, the AHS and benefit their practice as well. Thank you, Dr. Chu. Dr. Hearn. Good afternoon. Uh, for my report, uh, to continue on the credentials and privileges, uh, we had 10 initial appointments, 44 attempt privileges, six reappointments, one modification, 12 voluntary resignations, one BRAD initial, and three BRAD reappointments. We, in addition, uh, as my colleagues also did, um, we approved some multi-facility forms uh, for OPGYN and psychiatry uh, and uh, went through some medical staff criteria for initial and reappointment uh, when processing applications. Um, there were a number of other topics that we, that we discussed last week, uh, one of which, uh, which we spent a fair amount of time was talking about surge and, and flow. And Mr. Fonseca has uh, established our throughput committee uh, with uh, renewed vigor. Um, there has been, um, uh, we continue to face challenges on a number of levels, and there are eight subcommittees, I think, um, 
like within your the, the there's, group there's 13 different work groups, but work group. eight of them are eight of them are the ones that we prioritized as as our focus areas right now. Yeah, so there's a lot of, of excellent work that's being done to to, to work on that, um, and so we appreciate that uh, that focus and investment in in time and resources. Um, we also discussed the True North Metrics dashboard, uh, as well as the uh, the new uh, Sapphire ESR um, ongoing system-wide um, effects uh, and efforts. Uh, a couple other issues uh, we have we talked about. Uh, we spent some time talking about the MEC retreat. We had a large MEC retreat on the 13th, I believe, uh, with the three medical staffs. I think it was the first uh, time ever that the three medical staffs got together at Alameda, um, got together with that Alameda Hospital. Uh, I was all morning and we talked about compliance issues, regulatory requirements, uh, dealing with uh, professional behavior issues, uh, leadership, uh, resilience, the Vader Heart Program for early resolution of, uh, of uh, patient care issues and errors. And, and it was, I thought it was really, really helpful. I think most of the people there thought that it was a good event. Uh, by Saturday morning uh, time, uh, there were six hours of uh, uh, five, six hours of education and and uh, and collegiality. I thought that was excellent. Um, in addition, we had our orthopedic department annual report. Uh, they're uh, focusing on their standard metrics of uh, 30 and 90 day readmissions, uh, post-op infection rates, readmission rates, all the standard uh, features as well. Um, there are other categories of quality that they, uh, in their minds, uh, are also talking about in terms of turning to work, functional outcomes, uh, revision rates, and uh, of course, narcotic use and abuse, which is uh, a very important topic in the national discussion. We actually um, spent some time not only in our closed MEC session, but in our executive committee session talking uh, as well about the, um, the impact of the rehab, uh, rehab unit at St. Leandro Hospital and the uh, various options discussed for the medical staff to either become part of the San Leandro medical staff or to have uh, a facility that, that medical staff become part of the core medical staff. We probably spent 20 minutes in the in the main session, another 27, 20 minutes in the executive session talking about all those options and, and we're open to, to, to discuss that further. We're certainly happy to, um, to integrate the San Leandro medical staff into the core medical staff. We understand that there are different opinions as to what, what the right path is, but from our perspective, we are certainly welcome to, to have those discussions. So, in addition, we talked about the, the wellness program. Uh, we had uh, some brief slides from Lisa uh, Rappaport, not only at the MEC retreat, um, but an MEC talking about the initial uh, visits. What's interesting to, to note is in the initial visits for an individual counseling, 40% uh, were actually at the attending level which is different than what we would expect. We expected from the University of Washington, University of Oregon data that most of the visits would be sort of interns and R2s perhaps. Um, but it, it, it points to um, a couple things that could be interpreted that, that there's a, um, maybe it's a lack of awareness, but more importantly, I think it's a, it's a, it's a real need um, even amongst the attending staff um, for the psychological support and, and, and wellness issues. So I think that's interesting, ongoing. Uh, she's getting more and more referrals. In addition, she had a uh, all, all day on yesterday. She was at the OGYN department retreat, uh, and so she facilitated uh, a lot of really good interactions and discussions at, at the retreat as well. So uh, we are utilizing her more and more, um, and that was, that is excellent. In addition, there was a, uh, a wellness talk, a system-wide wellness talk yesterday at noon. Um, that was uh, sponsored by the Wellness Task Force. Uh, there was a speaker from Stanford who 
uh, nationally recognized speaker. Um, she works for the Stanford uh, overall wellness development uh, group. Um, we probably had 80 people in the room, 20 people online, and we actually recorded it, and we sent it out to all of the medical staff. Uh, so you can uh, go online and listen to it later. It's actually filled with evidence-based tips on how to improve your own resilience, your own outlook, positivity, knowing that positivity is infectious and, and, uh, and positive, uh, uh, positive outlook uh, increases wellness for everyone around you. Um, so some really great tips. So um, I sent that out to, uh, to a number of nursing leaders as well as every member of the medical staff um, as well. Uh, and then finally, the Wellness Task Force is in the very, very early stages of discussing a uh, capital campaign uh, for wellness include the possibilities of a wellness space, um, as well as uh, other um, support for future for the wellness talks. Um, and uh, again, we're in the very early stages of that, coming up with a um, business plan and proposal to perhaps the foundation um, in that regard. Thank you for that report. Trustees, any questions for Dr. Hearn? Trustee Jensen. Dr. Hum, were you kind of, were you a little surprised to see the, the degree of radiologists participating? <laughs> I, I, I was. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was interesting. And um, I mean, so, so in terms of the, uh, the, the breakdown for, for specialty, um, you know, internal medicine carries the bulk of the burden um, at this facility uh, for admissions. Uh, they have the most residents. Uh, um, but uh, so that was not surprising. Emergency medicine, because maybe because we keep talking about it all the time, um, you know, they're 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 very involved as well. But, sure. Yeah, eleven percent of the visits uh, were from radiology, <laughs> yeah, which is interesting. OBGYN um, and nurse midwives and pediatrics also had a, a large portion. So I thought that was, uh, that was fascinating. surprising lack of surgeons, um, but we hope to increase that. <laughs> <laughs> What's one tip that you got for being resilient? Sorry? What's one tip that you got for being resilient? So um, for being resilient, so, so evidence-based, that if um, it's, uh, it's something that's been discussed uh, in, in, other, in other settings, but it's called, it's like a, a gratitude journal, yeah. or um, to, to, to think at night about three things for which you are thankful. Um, yeah, right. And that shows increased positivity over time for the next yeah. month. Um, and if you write it down, you actually get like bonus points because um, it and lasts longer. And so if you take if you take time to think about three things that you are thankful for every single night, um, then it increases your outlook. And the the notion of being burnt out and angry is is not be you cannot express gratitude at the same time you cannot feel burnt out and angry at the same time that you are expressing gratitude for things. Um, and it's an interesting intention uh, there. So, so also, there's also great data. It's called cognitive restructuring. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you very much. Talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> also fascinating is that um, they talk about uh, workplace uh, workplace relationships, but also individual relationships. Um, and the number of uh, uh, and that researchers can tell within within meeting a, uh, a couple within 15 minutes whether or not they will remain a couple. Yeah. Based on purely the amount of positive comments uh, versus negative <laughs> comments. Given to, the eyes um, loves, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> given, given, given to University of Washington. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, great study. Yeah. Uh, you know, they so. call it the horseman of the apocalypse. Yeah. 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 He, he knows it all. Yeah. 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 
So we are doing something like this within our setup too, where we felt that in our internal group, uh, group of physicians with the American Academy of Pediatrics, is that often we um, focus a lot on burnout, but when you're building resiliency, there's the other aspect of it, of engagement that needs to be spoken about, like are we aligned with the values of the organization, are we all aligned, does the leadership so is, is it supportive? Are we supportive of the leadership? Is the leadership, do we feel like this is a place where we can have um, professional growth and development? And all of those pieces are also as important as that. So I think those, as you, as this wellness program was, there's just so much. You definitely need a capital campaign and this trustee is very uh, supportive of, uh, of what, what you're doing over here because there are so many different aspects of this. As we integrate and as we go through change, those are the kind of things that really uh, create the web uh, or you know, make it a, uh, a place to work. So this has to be a, a place of choice. For our physicians. Thank you very much. Yes, there are personal components, there are institutional components, there's efficiency of practice, there's so many things that, that, that go towards engagement um, and positivity. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. Uh, you, when you read the stuff at, at face value, you think this is like Northern California hippie stuff. Um, uh, but, the, and I live in Northern California, and I'm probably not hippie, but the functional MRI data is interesting. Uh, uh, expansion of gray matter on brains. Uh, the, the science is, is fascinating, so, so kudos to you for that. Um, any further questions for Dr. Hearn? What, what time am I? Right before Christmas? <laughs> 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 so Dr. Hearn, any further comments or suggestions to help us in the pursuit yeah, of the last one? All going support uh, from everyone in our endeavors. I, I would like to make one uh, question slash statement uh, for you. So this is the uh, October QPSC. There's a November QPSC, and there's not a December one. So um, uh, it's my understanding there will be some transitions in, in, in leadership at the MEC level amongst the three of you. Can you, can you reiterate? Because this might be the, the penultimate, uh, semi-penultimate meeting for, for some of you. Is <laughs> the semi-heavy? <laughs> uh, yes, as of January, um, there will be new leadership. Uh, um, I think at all three of you. We've unified, we've unified so for all three of you. The date switch used to be that the chief of staff switched in October for 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 four and we switched that. So my term is two years and 2.5, uh, 2.25 years. years. Um, so Ken Bellard is coming in January as chief of staff. Uh, Vice Chief will be Sophie Shabel, who is the interim chair for uh, GY, and the secretary will be the new supervisor. Dr. Chu. Uh, the election uh, results still hasn't come back, but uh, I can, you know, with a uh, uh, certain degree of certainty, uh, Dr. Ingenio will be uh, the next chief of staff. That's no one without it. And the vice chief of staff will be Dr. Conti. Uh, she's a hospitalist. And the treasurer, we actually have two candidates, so I cannot tell you wow, tough uh, uh, what's, who's going to be the treasurer. But uh, we, we will know in, in, a week's, in a week's time. Dr. Maglon. So uh, for Alameda Hospital, um, Dr. Uh, we st we uh, still have not had our um, election. We're still going to have it done. But the 
nominating committee has submitted to the MEC last Friday um, who the slate will be. And on my recollection is correct, Dr. Marzu, who's an infectious disease physician, will be the, um, he's the uh, vice uh, president of the medical staff right now. And he'll be the president of the medical staff. And Dr. Uh, Kathleen Pugh, who is a hospitalist, will be the, the uh, vice president of the medical staff. Well, uh, we still have one meeting more, one yeah, more meeting one together, so we, yes. we do, the board does want to thank you for your service. I'd ask maybe it, as next month is the last meeting for the QPSC for the calendar year, it might be a nice transition to bring uh, your, 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 those who are following you uh, to this meeting. Thank you. Um, with that, we will close out item D. We're a little behind. Uh, we'll move into item E, our SBU reports. As everyone recalls, we, we have both post-acute and behavioral health together, so we're always happy to have uh, Richard Espinoza and Dr. Karen Tribble with us. Um, I'm, uh, I, I want to always reiterate the principles, 25% presentation, 75% dialogue. Richard uh, gave a very nice three-page narrative. Dr. Tribble gave a very dense 14-page narrative. <laughs> right, well, let's, talk to, let's talk through the highlights uh, for each of you. So we have maybe about 25 minutes for this, if that's okay, between the two of you. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Ms. Uh, I'll just touch on some, you know, in the access we've seen uh, the post-acute. It begins on page 152. The post-acute facilities have been running at 95% occupancy, and so we've really been focused on throughput working with case management, and we've developed a committee for post-acute <coughs> partnership, and so we're developing um, a more cohesive and formalized partnership with our external partners. So since our internals are running pretty full, we need to utilize and work closely with our external partners, so we're working very closely on that. Um, one of the highlights that I did want to point out was our acute rehab. We last year had implemented some plans on how we could grow the census and be able to um, be able to take care of more of our patients that are coming from internal internally from Highland, Alameda, and San Leandro. And that plan has come to fruition. And so we budgeted uh, the facility to be at 25. We are at 25 today, and mm -hmm. so it's uh, it's a nice thing that now that it's not unusual to see that the building is running at 25. So we're pretty full in our acute rehab, um, which is a good preparation for the move to San Leandro as that census will be at 28. And so um, as we continue to work up those processes. Um, we also are continuing our work with our th therapy wait list. Um, we saw about a 46% reduction from where we started. We've implemented a lot of standard work and we're having a Kaizen report out on November 5th at Fairmont. Fairmont was the team that really drove a lot of the work and we're going to do the report out on the 5th and then a lot of that work will be adopted at Highland so that we can continue uh, the standardization across the outpatient therapy space. So I anticipate that we will be able to see some greater reduction in that wait list this year, even more than what we have budgeted for. So. In quality, one of the things that I do want to point out in the acute rehab unit is that they, um, they utilize a tool called a functional independent measure. And this is when a patient comes to the facility, we do an assessment to see what they're capable of doing. 
and then we do another assessment upon their discharge. And we're able to measure how much gains they have, have made. Are they able to walk another 100 feet? Are they able to be more independent in their ADLs? Um, and so the average is about a 28%, a 28 number on the FIM score, and the teams have been hitting 30 both in the stroke environment and in the rehab environment, and those are the two areas that we received CAR accreditation. I did want to make a correction. I put five-year CAR accreditation. It's only a three-year, which is the maximum. It was a typo. Um, so the team is really um, having some great outcomes for the patients that we're seeing. Um, and to piggyback on that, we just had our CMS visit, and they had zero findings at the acute rehab. So the team is working very hard. Um, I will say we, we still. Like zero findings. Uh, me too. <laughs> it's, not, it's not easy, but we like it. Um, I'll say falls is an area that we, as an SBU, have done well, that we still have opportunities by site. So our two largest SNFs still have some work to do. A lot of it is revolved around a new regulation that came out as part of um, the ROPs and CMS in terms of tabs, monitors, and pressure pads being considered restraints. And post-acute facilities aim to be restraint-free. And so as we've done a 50% reduction at Parkbridge in those tab monitors and those pressure pads, and it are trying to change the culture in terms of more frequent visits to the residents, we are seeing an uptick in the falls as we change this dynamic um, with this new culture change and the new regulation. So we are seeing a spike, but the teams have action plans that they're working on to make sure that we can keep those numbers low. Uh, and lastly, I'll talk about experience in the acute rehab. They had set a goal for 85% satisfaction, and for this last quarter, they were at 89% satisfaction from the patients, which is great. And currently, the uh, SNFs and subacute units are submitting the numbers uh, for surveys for my interview, which is our third-party vendor uh, who does our patient and uh, family satisfaction surveys. So we're sending a number of how many residents surveys we need, how many family satisfaction surveys we need, and what languages we need them in. And that survey, that information is being sent to my interview this week. And so hopefully by the end of November, we should have our uh, stats for the post-acute environment. I will say the average for SNF satisfaction was 76. And our last survey had our subacute and South Shore at 90 and Park Bridge at 79. Uh, so they're above national standards. Our Fairmont, um, where we saw, I think it was about a 15% increase we're getting them closer to where we need them to be. And I would say that's my report. Thank you. Trustees? The outpatient is not something that, um, with some of these, like um, the audiology and the wait times and things like that, does that um, overlap with um, the inpatient um, first acute? So I have responsibility for inpatient rehab and outpatient rehab. Patient so we are working on both, correct. So is it a, is it a staffing capacity issue for the wait times to be? Uh, so I think we identified several um, pieces of where there were some gaps. And we are standardizing a lot of those practices. And so part of it was how we were scheduling our um, appointments. Mm -hmm. So we've standardized that across the campuses so that we're, we're scheduling exactly the same way. We had a variance. Um, in one campus, we were scheduling 30 minutes and then evals at 45 minutes. So it made it very difficult to place an eval when you might have a 30 minute. So we've standardized at Highland and Fairmont. 
the same at 45 minute um, slots. So we can put an eval in or a treatment in and not have that, um, you know, that lock in terms of the schedule. Um, we've actually seen the, and I don't want to give too much away because we're having our, our Kaizen on the 5th, but the, the productivity numbers are in the high 90s now. And so with a lot of the adjustments that we've seen, um, we're seeing the throughput. The numbers are dropping, but we are seeing some other issues now in terms of uh, residents or patients coming back multiple times. And so because our patient's on paper charting and then they scan it into the chart, we're having a discussion with our clinics to say, did you know that your patient has already been seen by outpatient and that the recommendation was that they didn't need any more? And so what we're seeing is that they're going back and then there's another recommendation for therapy and the teams are saying, oh, we've already seen this patient, but then now they're on the wait list again. And so we're fine-tuning different parts of the system and standardizing the work. And I anticipate we will continue to see that number drop. It's just been a lot of pieces of the organization that we needed to standardize the work and, and really the STAR program has really helped us identify where we can make improvements and now that we're seeing that we're seeing the number again decline and the volumes go up. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's very helpful. Dr. Jay. Just a quick question and related to OTPT. Uh, last year uh, we were impacted by flu. How is our flu vaccine in the SNFs uh, employees and the the residents. So we are currently in the window of receiving flu vaccine for our staff. We're also getting all the consents from our residents for flu vaccination. We typically are above the state average in terms of um, percentage of applications. So the teams are currently working on that right now. Richard, as the senior administrator of behavioral health, can you can you just illustrate for us? Post acute, not behavioral health. I'm on cruise control. Can you name uh, your two biggest challenges, triage or challenges? And and then the follow up question is: Do you feel resourced to navigate those challenges? Sure. Um, I would say. Um, we are, we are, I think there's a lot, but I think we are bringing a lot of post-acute expertise to our Fairmont campus. And in doing so, it's requiring a lot of changes, a lot of, a lot of changes, a lot of education. And, and it's been needed for some time, and I think we're putting the right players in place to help that happen. But I think it's difficult in terms of culture change is tough. Yeah. Um, and so, so, and, you know, so balancing how we make sure we're taking care of our staff at the same time of taking care of our residents, at the same time of educating and teaching not only to um, the standard of SNFs, but also all the regulatory changes that are happening. Phase three of the ROPs is going into effect November 2019. So the first two phases have already happened. Phase three is in the works. And so that's a lot of work to standardize that work in a building that was slightly behind in terms of understanding that. So I think that's challenging and that we want to make sure that we're being sensitive to our staff and, and what that looks like. Um, so I would say that's one of the biggest ones. Do I feel resourced? I do. I think do. from our human resources to our labor relations to our teams, I feel very supported. Um, so I would say that. And I also think just making sure that we're you know, I have very high standards, and it's just because I always imagine if that were my mom or my dad, and we share this with our teams, that is the only level of care we would want to deliver, and so we want to make sure that everyone understands that. So. Thank, Thank you. you.
uh, standard work. Any further comments or suggestions to help us in the pursuit of the highest quality care in post-acute? Just keep up doing what we're doing, right? Thank you for your report. Dr. Triple. Yes. Um, Welcome. Th thank you. And I do apologize, uh, apologize for the density of the report. No, no, it's a My lot of information. My like 10 pages, yeah, so I apologize. You have a lot to be proud of. Um, um, there has been actually a lot of um, um, activity in the last quarter for behavioral health. So I will try to point to the highlights and um, just want to acknowledge our, my, uh, several of my physician leaders are here as well. So if there's some more issues and or questions, feel free to uh, include them. Uh, one of the things that we first uh, have been looking at this last quarter is around operational changes initially, uh, changing workflows and so forth. Um, one of the things that have been a, a fairly significant key initiative have been to restructure uh, the nursing leadership. Um, some of the pages are around imagery so one can actually visualize what it looks like at this point. Um, um, won't spend a lot of time, but again, historically, John George has provided a, a lot of managerial oversight. So now there has been now a reinvestment in direct line staff when an allocation of duties that looks very different. Some of the new key factors or and positions that we've added have been around uh, intake, coordination of care, which is around throughput and coordinating with other facilities, which didn't exist. Those are new positions, as well as uh, a more house supervisory role, which some of our other facilities within the system have uh, have taken. Um, that John George has not. So that's been pretty significant in terms of uh, the nursing uh, domain. Uh, some of the other pieces that directly relate to... Dr. Tribble, I yes. apologize. Can you walk us through this diagram a little yes. bit? Because I, I, uh, it, there, there was a top and a bottom and the... I would, it, is one old state, new state, or, or they're both current state? I but, apologize. That's okay. That, uh, I didn't want to. So I can't read any of it, but okay. I, I, think, I hope you all have visuals in front of you. Yes. Um, so the top one just basically, uh, it has been reconfigured so that each man, each unit or each department within John George has a manager and assistant manager. That sounds very clean, um, but in, in the previous states, uh, each, um, each shift had managers, and so there was just a lot of chiefs. and. Unfortunately, those individuals then became part of the, the ratios and were not able to provide administration and leadership. Uh, so the, the first one just depicts the four different units or departments of John George now have a corresponding leader as well as an assistant manager. The bottom one also shows those are the new positions that report directly. The red box is uh, Dr. Mulewa, who's our director of nursing at John George. And the new roles that were created, as I referenced, intake supervisor, which we have positions for um, um, extended hour day as well as weekend. And the other one is the house supervisor role. So those two positions now report up to director of nursing, again, to give greater accountability so that not one unit is operating exclusively or, or too much different in terms of the, some of the change management protocols we're using. And so there's a standardization on that. So that's what this is depicting. The colors are just for function Got in it. terms of that. Yes. So there's actually 17 different positions. There, there used to be. Now there are not. It's been reduced. So now there's actually, for the assistant manager role, there are four assistant managers and then um, uh, for the day. And then on the other positions, there are house supervisors for knock and evening shift. And then there are weekend shifts for the intake coordinator. So it's just divided by uh, shift and function to show the coverage at this point that didn't previously exist. But I guess my question is, could the house supervisor be at a, the, one of the positions at the top? Uh, 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 to these, to these 
conditions or the um, crop, crop uh, with, with one person, for example, an intake supervisor as well as a nurse manager on the inpatient unit? No. Okay. No. So there's each of these boxes is a specific separate? Person. No. Only where, um, if you see the two, um, the second one, it says new role. That's just describing what they are. And then if you see down, those people are. So the, on the second box, the first two purples, those are positions. And then if you move to the right, the two orange, those are positions. The one in the middle that's white, that's not. It's just describing to folks okay. to understand the role. Right. So before we did start out with 18 to 20 managers. Now we are down to around uh, eight or nine FTE. So more and the, the line staff have gone up. Yes, so now we are, we, well. So people are doing the bedside correct. care. There's correct. more of that. Correct, including break nurses. And again, there's other implications to filling those positions, but that is the intention. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so that was a, a significant change. Uh, the other thing I'm very pleased to um, announce, uh, Dr. Amy Yang, we now have a co-lead. So both she and Dr. Valania now work in our uh, uh, PES. And some of the commentary that we've been talking about, the surge in, P in 5150 patients, it's not an anomaly. John George is seeing it. All of the other pa uh, hospitals within our system are seeing it. We've already had conversations with the county, healthcare, behavioral health. We'll be doing a presentation uh, tomorrow to EMS to talk about that and we've had to in later sections uh, you'll see that we've had to initiate the census management hold uh, not just related to literature which we are pleased to mostly have resolved but now it's the growing acuity uh, the presentations that we're seeing we're seeing a lot more unduplicated patients which is actually ironic uh, we've done some uh, demographic review kind of uh, just looking more carefully at the patient population and some are coming from out of state, Washington, Oregon, and some from Arizona. So we don't know what has changed. And we're also seeing an influx from um, um, Contra Costa. Some of the conversations we've had with the county, uh, we, we do, not, do know that Contra Costa is able to refer to, through the county, there's some relationships to other programs. So we're imagining that that is uh, bringing some folks in. And we're also finding that if, um, whenever there is a um, as you know, there are efforts to, to address the homelessness. And whenever we even had an encampment on the Fairmont campus, when that sweep occurred, there was an immediate um, coincidental influx in patients that were, were homeless that came into John George. So there's a lot of factors. And one of the challenges, which again, speak to some of the workflows that you'll see in the presentation, has been to manage both the increased census and the acuity. So these individuals are coming in much more complex. Um, more involvement with law enforcement. We've seen, um, according to them, they've given us feedback that there's been an increased number of TAE youth, um, transitional age youth. Um, we've actually met with the county about that. And for those that aren't aware, there's actually, ironically, it's a kind of a, I won't say a perfect storm, that sounds theatrical. Uh, but some of the legislation at the state level have changed for transitional age youth so that residential facilities that used to house these individuals are essentially have been dismantled. They are instead trying to connect uh, young uh, folks in our system through social services with community-based programs. So that is great, but what that means is when there is a crisis, um, transitional age youth, as they age out, 18 to 24, they don't have anywhere to go. And so we're seeing an increase with that. 
Uh, we've also seen uh, uh, graduate closures of regional centers, which essentially are those serving our developmentally delayed individuals of autism, uh, mental retardation, and so we have literally had uh, an increase um, of patients with DD on board where they end up uh, unfortunately staying much longer than they normally would at John George just because the placement options are limited. So there's a lot of different things. I've mentioned it before. Substance abuse um, is increasing. Even in the county, we're seeing a decrease in um, death related to opioid. But on the other hand, John George and across uh, behavioral health at all of the sites are seeing interesting use of other things, including bath salts and things. So um, by and large, there's just a lot of energy uh, being attended to that in terms of uh, what, we're hap uh, what we're, we're doing. The other piece related to that is we are also redesigning our social work model. Previously, we had two social workers clearly um, working in PES. It's not sufficient, obviously, so we've increased that by 100%. And those individuals will now be working closely with uh, both our uh, physician leads and really to manage the throughput and, and the nursing team, as well as the intake coordinators that we've made, so, uh, that we have hired for. So we're hoping to have those positions fully filled um, soon. Um, but I, I just say that to say there are multiple efforts that we're looking at, both operationally, workflow changes, staffing, and reaching out with our partners around that. Um, I should mention also, we, uh, I, I think I mentioned in other presentations, and it's in this one, there was a Sussel Creek closure. Um, some are aware of that. Again, that was that is the essentially the urgent medication psychiatry clinic that used to service our county. Um, we've, we've had some, um, I'm on the record, so we've had some um, dynamic discussions with the county about the causal relationship to some of the spike, but we are hearing from other providers that that is no longer a referral source. It's now that clinic only services individuals who are moderate to severe, which means county patients. It doesn't serve our population, which is primarily mild to moderate. Mm -hmm. So even though behavioral health does serve uh, mild to, uh, moderate to severe, there's now a gap. So we are perhaps supposing that the community word on the street that this clinic is closed may also be increasing so that there is spillage and perhaps, again, this is all um, anecdotal, maybe presenting our EDs, looking for medications, not sure how to go, how can I get my emergency meds, and there just really isn't a place where they can drop in to get those needs met. So again, there's a lot of factors that we're kind of trying to re-engage uh, county and some of our community partners on, but it really centers around the emergent need, uh, both on the um, PES as well as some of our other sites where behavioral health is. Um, I, again, I, we, we mentioned there's a lot going on. I think the only other piece um, that I will speak a little bit about is on the other side of the house for the integrated uh, behavioral health. Um, very, very pleased to welcome uh, I love her name. Her name is Dr. Karen Wise. Um, <laughs> for a lot of reasons, I like her name. Um, but she's uh, a fabulous leader. She's now the director um, to conceptualize everything outside of John George in terms of behavioral health. So she's working to, to develop a little more of a comprehensive model that is um, a little more reflective of the standard of practice in behavioral health. So we've had a lot of uh, great gains, a lot of clarity around program design, both at the outpatient level, some of the contracting, the SUD expansion, as well as um, some of the other uh, alignment with ambulatory partners. So um, there's uh, quite a bit of work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think
think that's all I've got. Well, uh, trustees, uh, questions for Dr. Tribble? Thank you for that. Work. And it, it was very well written. There was just a lot of it. Yes. <laughs> trustees? So Dr. Tribble, same questions as I, I asked Richard. Uh, as the senior administrator for behavioral health, uh, can you illustrate your two biggest challenges? And are you resourced, do you feel resourced to navigate those challenges? Oh, it's a lovely question. I think uh, the two basic, biggest challenges I, I would, uh, and I would imagine the team would affirm that, is around the crisis. Um, I won't say epidemic again, that sounds very, uh, demonstrative that we're seeing an upsurge of 5150 patients across the county particularly uh, accessing AHS and in terms of the other priority is our outpatient um, and on that side I, I would say that we've got to do a lot more I think within the SBU creative resourcing because I think there the need is growing and there's a finite number of individuals dedicated through at least through behavioral health so um, it's, it's an ongoing challenge, I think. Uh, so we're, we're looking into expanding um, um, APIC accreditation and internship and postdocs and pre-docs to have more forces that are free for service um, to try to meet the need without the fiscal resources. Yeah. Okay. Trustees? Yeah, as I, I, go I'm, ahead. Sorry. Well, since you brought up, since the 5150 was just being discussed, um, I wonder how, what your, I know um, Richard was asked, and this wasn't asked to you, Karen, but about your um, challenges or, or your, and if you have the resources to address the challenges, and I, and, and, and I don't know if this is one of them, but it's actually, I'm thinking about um, the 5150s at the, system-wide, as the leader of the um, behavioral health in the system, the 5150 issues at the uh, other, especially at the EDs, at other sites, and how, um, what you might need, or how that could be improved. Um, I would say my the statements I just mentioned would apply, and, and in terms of that, I think it, it is a challenge. Uh, as we're going through our workflows, that's been very helpful. Our, you know, physician leaders have been very diligent. Um, I think to the extent we can, we're making operational changes, for example, at Jean John George. For example, the triage physicians literally used to take the calls. So when there was a, p a patient issue at any hospital, they would both triage, meet the ambulance, coordinate with nurses, and answer phones. And the system, we just can't accommodate that. So there have been workflow changes to help spread some of that work. Um, but it's a, it's a balance, and it's a challenge, because as the need grows in increasingly at the other sites, obviously there's this desire to have a doc-to-doc -doc consultation immediately. Um, so it's, it, it is a balance. I think what's been helpful um, putting on the same page is uh, some of the Kaizen work that's happening with the throughput committee, the ED, and that's been very helpful. Um, literally just finding out that uh, some, some of our ED partners didn't have the right phone numbers, and we're calling numbers that were ringing to someone's desk and didn't exist any longer. So I think there's work to do, and there's a lot that we're working on, but uh, we are juggling multiple balls because the needs are growing, so. And so I, agree. I I just want to, as I, I've been an Alameda resident for a long time, very long time, and um, one of the things our local throwaway um, week, once a week paper does is, is include um, police calls. They have a, about a half a page every week, and I've noticed the trend of the team for psychiatric evaluation 
has been increasing it just yes. in the last two years actually but over the past um, seven or eight years and uh, obviously if they're detained they're they're only going one place or they're only going to be released from one 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 physician service and that would be on the health system yes yes and and we're, I think uh, John George and probably others are seeing that uh, in different ways the desire to release a hold is now is again vehemently discussed and we're working with the county to get those privileges as soon as we you know, are able um, but also John George also gets not only they're already on a Santa hold but they're in custody so they haven't even been adjudicated and that is a challenge because you have an individual who's not yet been processed who comes who's technically on their free will technically so even the security and safety is something that we're looking at across the board but I would say yes I think the system is seeing that very same thing um, well thanks for your leadership on that <laughs> thank you thank you Dr. thank you yeah of course um, so I know that John Josh has gone through that so many different things the facilities the triaging and all of that I was just wondering given the kind of patient mix that you're seeing right now is there what are you doing about uh, like there must be something you're doing about intentional discharge so that people are more functional as they're being discharged and to prevent uh, you know kill any kind of uh, things happening. I know we did read about uh, the safety report as well. So how, how is that working out and how you're changing? Well, uh, one of the good things, and I definitely will defer to our physician leaders, but one of the good things that I can comment on is the, the occupational therapy department is extremely strong um, in, in, as, as far as the team and planning. And even so much for looking at clothing and very concrete things as well as the uh, s social work and others and I think there is a an intentional focus that uh, the physicians are looking at um, in a kind way so that folks don't come back and I think you probably saw that the trust clinic the pilots that we are now engaging with the county to literally give them a ticket or a, a taxi voucher and they drive right over to the trust clinics so which the warmest handoff we can think of so I don't know if, uh, if it's a permitted if the you want to come, come forward? Uh, yes. Michael and Tanya, yeah, come forward. Come here. Uh, so basically what I wanted to say is things during the transition of care is when things happen so you can do so much when somebody is in your facility and give absolutely outstanding care and then just when they're being discharged if they're not fully functional when they've brought into and things so how are you making given you know, you've had a certain procedure for discharge but now you're seeing all these patients who have all these different comorbidities and accuracy and how is that is there training happening with staff to do that? Mm -hmm. It's not perfect, but I think the trust clinic is a great model. Um, there's unpublished data about these patients who are being readmitted four times or more in a month that it, it's not published so I can't, I know it's on the record, but I can't say too much about it, but it's surprising. The people are not, uh, it was surprising data to me just to try to understand more of who is coming in over and over again. And the kind of safety you, know, you worry about in somebody who's leaving PES is 
uh, usually more on the lines of somebody who's you know not not clothed, not housed, overexposed to the elements. Luckily, Alameda County has very um, forgiving weather, you know. But the people who are committing petty crimes to get a little bit of money so they can get food. So the good things about the trust clinic is just finding out things like the percentage of people that are male versus female, housed versus unhoused. It's actually different than you would think more people have housing than you imagine. So there's something else they're coming to PES for and we're trying to understand. And so having a place where we're actually investigating the people who are coming consistently and giving them whatever they need, even if it's not psychiatric care, the way you would imagine it in your mind has been really helpful. Um, so we can know how better to meet the needs later. Thank you, that's helpful. Well, we, we did um, finish a we did finish a trust uh, mini pilot um, with the highest utilizers in uh, at, in the John George system, uh, and it was, it was about 49 patients. And what the data did show, uh, I don't want to say anything specific, was that there was a decrease in recidivism rates for a good number of those patients. And so now we're at phase two of the mini pilot, partnering with the county, um, and now the we're opening that uh, gap to about 750 patients, um, which, and, and the uh, criteria is that they've presented to John George at least four times within the last 12 months. Um, and uh, I'm not sure how, how many of you are familiar with the Trust Clinic, but it uh, is a community-based uh, clinic that serves um, mostly uh, Medi-Cal individuals, and they have co-located social services, uh, medical uh, clinic, primary care clinic, as well as psychiatric services. They have a psychiatrist uh, on site Monday through Friday for 40 hours, and uh, um, especially with the, how uh, siloed uh, uh, historically a lot of the programs have been in this county, now we're trying to you know, integrate everything. And, you know, uh, for patients to have a one-stop shop where they can have their needs met um, in a very confusing system to navigate. Uh, so we're hopeful that, uh, that we can continue the work. And we are in the process of uh, training and educating the physicians and the frontline staff on identifying these patients and referring them to trust. So just for uh, additional context, uh, the, the, the effort or the um, pilot that the discussion is is part of the uh, 1115 waiver. It's actually the whole person care part of it. So if you remember, you know, Prime and GPP and then whole person care being uh, one of the other components in the dental part of support. Uh, whole person care and the dental are both county-led uh, initiatives of which we and several other provider groups uh, partner. Uh, and I hope it's good about taking the highest utilizers of medical systems, uh, but also looking at people who uh, have other social needs uh, and trying to uh, pro uh, provide sort of a comprehensive wraparound service, uh, a set of wraparound uh, services for them. And the trust clinic is uh, actually a part of uh, the county's FQHC, so uh, we, are, we are a big portion of it. The trust clinic is another part, it's, so it's owned by the county. That, though, that one is operated by Lifelong Medical Center. Um, something else that, oh, sorry, is there another question? Yes, that has been again extremely successful and for those that aren't aware, in, in brief that is a program that was initially 
um, started some years ago, funded by the county also, but it just literally ties previous patients who have done well on their life journey with discharge patients. So they are, they are partners in crime and advocacy, not literally, but really just, <laughs> <laughs> that was not No, I'm sorry. I mean, they were right there with them at every step, calling them, taking them to appointments. So it's not a clinical yeah. model. It's right. literally, I'm there with you. I've seen this. So yeah. that has also shown to help. So. Uh, and uh, Dr. Trimble's report, she also mentioned um, the uh, social services uh, service uh, delivery model is changing in the sense that we are actually expanding it. A job there, so uh, we historically we've had uh, two FTEs during the week, uh, you know, sort of patients in PES, and you know, if the census is you know, 50 to 60 um, on a you know, really a busy day, then um, there's... Uh, the social workers would be spread too thin to be able to see every single patient. Um, but now it's uh, expanded to four FTE, yes. uh, I understand, uh, Monday through Friday. Um, and and, and one of them is a social work supervisor. Yes, and, and the only addition to, to say it, again, just translate that. So now the physicians, when they, the transmissions and the the psychiatrists, when they when they see the patient, there's a workup already, and that was not a previous workflow. So that there's a so the social workers are actually getting a lot of the data that unfortunately was um, physician reliant, and so that also slowed some of the throughput. So it's been not only community based, but again, uh, a, a really a, a most closer partnership with the physicians and nursing staff. Mr. Fonseca. Thank you. I just wanted to make a closing statement regarding both of these reports here. Um, I think that we get your, your question around what are we doing, how can, you know, what, what are those areas of concern and what, you know, are they probably resourced and equally, what can we do to continue to enhance the quality of care? And I just, I don't want to underestimate, I know that at the Finance Committee there was a lot of questions around um, behavioral health and what was happening in the area and what we were seeing, some of the spikes and some of the, the volume data and things. So I, you know, I asked uh, Dr. Tribble to, to, you know, provide a comprehensive review of exactly everything that's happening. And so I think she's done a very good job of, of reflecting and communicating that. I have to just commend, you know, her and her team, uh, you know, our, our physician leaders, um, you know, this diet relationship that they have at John George. I mean, they work very closely together. They address all these issues in a very challenging environment. But I will say that both Richard and, and, and Dr. Tribble have done a phenomenal job of revamping the entire delivery of care model. And, and, and that's the, that is the, the biggest work effort that they've had to you know, uh, do over the last six months. It was a very, very heavy lift. It required a tremendous amount of change. It impacted you know, many individuals. But when it comes down to making sure that we're positioned in the best way to provide the highest level of care, that's what they've done, and that's what we need to continue to do to achieve that. And so I want to commend them for really staying the course, really focusing, and, and, and pushing through and making this happen for us and for our patients. Thank you, Mr. Fonsenica. Uh, and let, let me say uh, they could be two of the three items on our appreciation list for today <laughs> as we go forward. So uh, with that, uh, thank you for your report. We'll close out item E. Uh, begging this committee's uh, indulgence. We're at uh, we're coming to time check. We're probably going to go across five minutes. We'll move quickly. We move into item F. Uh, actually, uh, one, one thing. Uh, Andrew Captain on page 172 and 171. Uh, this isn't for discussion. It's, it's for uh, at a request for the trustees. The org chart. So uh, these will be standing items within the packet because I know some, uh, there, there are a lot of questions of, of how things flow as, as, as uh, we probably royally don't, the royal we don't think about how everything flows. So the org chart, core, the master org chart, and the operations division will be in every packet subsequently, just so you know. Um, uh, moving
item F, the Patient Safety and Regulatory Affairs Report. We, we, I will say uh, on open mind, we had some discussion around these issues in closed session, which were quite robust. Do we have any follow-up comments for open session on either the Patient Safety and Regulatory Affairs Summary? All right, with that, we will close item F. I actually... Oh, sorry, we'll open item F back oh, open. Sorry, I wanted to say, I just wanted to tie back in your, the thing that you brought up earlier, um, our, our, our esteemed chair, you brought up um, the issue of the patient voice, and um, it, it occurred to me as I was as I was reviewing, um, re-reviewing all of the patient safety data in, in, in there. As you know, it, initially I brought up, um, my question was how um, do patients know when to report? I asked um, the presenter in closed session, and I'll admit that. That's okay, Mike. That's okay. But I did ask that question, and um, asking how does a patient know when to, to report, to, to have a grievance, or, or actually to have a complaint, which may or may not turn into a grievance. And so this, I just thought it kind of came around for me when you were talking about the patient voice. I think that's really critical, and that sometimes these things that we're seeing in these types of reports, the, um, the risk report, for example, it, it would be it would be very we would be better informed if there was a patient that we um, knew and trusted that was also commenting and um, and giving us information on these types of issues. Thank you for that comment. Um, with that, we will close out item F. Uh, and we'll move, move to item G. Item G is going to also be a new standing item for the report. It's a written report um, uh, uh, on the third, uh, you know, historically we've discussed our True North metrics in the context of the SBUs, which is perfectly fine, but, but given our position, it would be nice if we saw holistically all 13 of the ones we approved on a monthly basis. This is the big work that uh, Dr. Hussein's been uh, giving to us. So this will be a regular report. This is the, uh, these are the 13 items in the five or six pages which preceded these were, were really an excellent narrative uh, on his work. So Tim Bear, I apologize because we're at time. Uh, uh, trustees, do you have any comments uh, uh, other than uh, I'm, I'm inspiring you? Is this a really well-written report? It helps to give a nice, robust understanding to, to what these 13 things are. Okay. So, so um, we'll continue. Yeah, I just have to say I can't take credit for the entire report because actually, in, actu in actuality, the nice thing about the way that this has been set up is that there are identified individuals who take the lead on each of these, and they actually are the ones who send that feedback up. And so what has been established from board all the way to bedside, we're beginning to see that happen. So thank you to help. So going forward, if, you, if your chair can manage time better, we will actually give uh, ability to discuss uh, some of these items. So this is just our first entree into this with a very nice narrative. My one request, Dr. Hussein, is if somehow you could infuse a little bit of steep into this, uh, how, how those items might relate amongst the safety, timeliness, efficiency, effectiveness, equity, and patient-centeredness. And I just want to say, um, since we're on the, uh, on the topic of kudos to uh, Richard and Karen, I also have to add additional kudos to say that they have reached out, and I'm grateful for them to actually have dialogues about how to um, align the uh, post-acute and behavioral health SBU dashboards with the um, same framework that we have for True North Metric. So uh, more gratitude. Yeah, so more gratitude. Gratitude. <laughs> with that, we'll close item G, which will, again will be a standing report. We'll move into item H, 
which is planning and calendar. This is also a new item. This is our regular calendar. This is a kudos to Trustee Hernandez, who wasn't here last time. This is the, this is how we're going to forecast our year. And, and uh, Dr. Uh, Jay and I work on this roughly every month. We have our standing committee reports, which are there. And then we have below that miscellaneous and open session reports. You see, uh, we have a few slated for next year. I always want to give people advance notice. Doing some remarkable work uh, in the Human Rights Clinic, for which our organization and Dr. Nick Nelson has gotten national kudos on NPR. I think uh, uh, this board would, would well serve to hear about that. Uh, the Provider Wellness Program, of course, it's something which we've discussed regularly. We'll look for a report and let them accumulate some data so they give us a better report. Also was yes. so, so, so we have lots of stuff that we should can pop on, populate on this. Dr. Jay, if I'll write it down if you remind me at our next meeting. Uh, and translation services have been discussed as well, and then the transfer center. So there's no dearth of things to put here. We're, we're going to want to make make it uh, very good. And LGBT uh, uh, issues, uh, which we've we've certainly discussed in the, in the in the large board format, I think would be appropriate. Here. So. Have to find the time to do that. Is so, there, with, um, is there room for discussion about other items that would possibly be in this? Because, for example, we talked so much today about that patient perspective, and I'm I'm sure we're going to hear more about yes. this. But it feels like this is this is exactly what you know we've been talking about in terms of managing the topics and the agenda items. Um, uh, two things that pop up right away are health equity and. Uh, the patient experience, the, the comments from patients. Perhaps we could bring them to the full board because yes. I feel like some of these things are so yes. important. It would yes. be nice for yes. the folks who are not on QPSC to hear about. Absolutely. So, yeah. Trustee Hernandez, the answer is absolutely yes. There's open. This is open, open yeah. for dialogue. We can we can put here. This is our committee. We can put right. here what we like. Uh, did you have a comment, Dr. Jane? Uh, no, that's, uh, that's in the context of the like, Title 22 performance improvement and uh, new initiatives, we can put it into that context. I just have a very quick comment. Um, I know that we are talking post-acute and <coughs> health SVU, but there was medication error. Uh, uh, I just want to mention to the board that uh, last week we had the CMS survey uh, concerning this, and it went uh, through for about two or three days, and uh, we were found to be in substantial compliance with all elements of that. That's good news. Thank you for that. So the board knows that. With that, we'll close uh, item H, and we'll move last item, uh, uh, council. Oh, item I. Yes, and the uh, board met in closed session approved the credential reports of the three medical staffs for those physicians who have met requirements for credentialing, and they took no other action. Thank you, Council. That closes item. Tomorrow begins the board retreat. Um, uh, there is actually the full, so we actually get to all go home tonight. So the same here until 10 p.m. So uh, the board meeting will open tomorrow, approximately 8:20 a.m. There will be a, a attenuated, shortened board meeting tomorrow. That will be followed by, I think, a, a very important discussion about. Uh, our strategic plan in sessions one and two that will lead into the lunch hour, and then and then if I'm remembering this correctly, this really correct me. After, after right, right after that, we will then have the Stanley Andrew discussion. We'll end the day talking about uh, our board self review and our so-called board playbook. Um, Saturday uh, is there's a lot lot uh, a heavier closed session present. So I say to the medical staff members, 
Friday is probably where the money is uh, for the medical staff. Um, uh, Saturday is more kind of internal uh, board, board stuff. So with that, uh, we're only at plus seven minutes. My apologies. Thank you. We close the QPSC. Yeah,